This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're talking about the democratization of value through the replication of full risk APM adoption in primary care. We're joined by two executives from Upstream Healthcare, a billion dollar full risk health services organization that embeds clinicians into participating doctors' offices as an advanced full risk Medicare program for network physicians. At its core, Upstream is a marketplace solution for primary care physicians that accelerates progression towards fully capitated risk. They're focused on patients with chronic conditions and embedding highly trained prescribing pharmacists and coordination nurses that in the PCP office. They're looking at partnering with client practices and creating the right infrastructure and the resources to support the whole person care experience. Daniel, I'm, I'm just really excited about this conversation and, and what our primary care listeners can learn as they proceed in their own value journey from two of these amazing guests that we have on this week. Eric, I really share your enthusiasm. We've got two of the biggest thought leaders in the value movement to discuss this important topic. We've got Upstream CEO and co-founder, Dr. Sanjay Dadamani, and their Chief Corporate Affairs Officer, Valinda Rutledge. Sanjay spent a career in directly caring for medically complex patients while also collaborating with physicians in building innovative care delivery solutions across clinical networks and integrated health systems. He's the former senior advisor to CMMI, CMO of the Keystone ACO in Geisinger at Home, and most recently was the chief physician executive for Southwestern Health Resources ACO. We're also honored to have Belinda here with us today. She's widely known in the value movement through her work as a CMS leader and a hospital CEO. She was most recently the executive vice president of federal affairs for APG, where she headed all federal government affairs activities in DC. And she's also worked previously as a founding member of the leadership team at CMMI, where she helped build the innovation center from a startup phase and managed the design and launch of several of the center's alternative payment models. Before joining CMS, she was also the CEO of several regional and multi-state health systems within Bon Secure and SSM Health. Well, let's now hear from Dr. Sanjay Dadamani and Belinda Rutledge as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Sanjay and Belinda, it's so great to have you on the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. 
Well, I thought a great place to begin our conversation today would be by considering the transformation opportunity of massively powerful primary care within a value-based purchasing construct and the paradigm of fee-for-service, which currently dominates our industry. Independent primary care physicians are extremely cash-strapped, and they're struggling to remain financially solvent. I mean, the, we, have, we see these PCPs in the current model on a hamster wheel. They're just running faster and faster by cranking through more and more transactional E&M encounters just to generate enough revenue to keep the lights on. And as the hassles have gotten worse, many PCPs are jumping ship and selling their practices to larger enterprises like hospitals and PE-backed physician aggregators. Consequently, data from the AMA now shows that only 32% of primary care physicians work in a private practice outside of a corporatized care delivery business model. And what I love about the vision for Upstream is that it unleashes the untapped healing reservoir of massively powerful, independent primary care through full-risk value-based Medicare programs. And Sanjay, I know you've been an advocate for collaborative care models in the PCP arena for quite some time. And you've talked about how this a win-win-win model. And there was a, an interview that, that you gave a while back, and you talked about how Patients win through better outcomes, personalized experience, and lower spending. Primary care physicians win through a collaborative care model, ensuring the highest care and safety standards are met for patients with chronic conditions, and they have much more stable cash flow. And payers also win by seeing these dramatic improvements in quality, publicly reported outcomes, performance ratings, and just better value through these optimal managed medical programs and lower costs. So all that said, you know, it seems like we have this historic moment as an industry to act in really accelerating value-based payments so we can reach the full potential of the quadruple aim. So I wanted to ask you both, can you describe how Upstream serves a crucial role in reordering the primary care universe towards value-based contracting? And given that 75% of primary care revenue is still fee-for-service, what role can value-based care play in ensuring continued existence of the independent primary care model? Eric, I think that the pandemic really kind of slowed up uh, the value-based movement for a while because for most of us, we were so focused in terms of taking care of patients and moving through the pandemic and having uh, staff and resources to take care of those patients. But what it did is it challenged us to take a look at how we deliver care in a very, very different manner. As you know, the amount of telehealth dramatically went up. And what happened in primary care is they realized that their traditional way of seeing patients in the office, that they had to modify that. Many of them had to go to telehealth or they actually put hotspots in their office. So some of their patients would have to go to the parking lot to be able to access the telehealth because they didn't have broadband. They also began to change the flow of patients. I talked to many primary care practices that actually changed um, how they were seeing patients in terms of who had high risk for a respiratory versus well medical visits. So I think through that, they begin, I think, primary care begin to take a look at, do we need to change how we are functioning and getting paid going forward? And uh, certainly we all 
recognize the struggle that we have with the Medicare trust fund coming up with um, a part A being not underfunded uh, through that. So I think what has happened, it is allow primary care practices to step back a little bit and sort of say, number one, do I want to stay in the type of relationship I'm in right now? in terms of being employed uh, by health systems or being employed in terms of other owners. Is there a way for me to partner with people, get the resources I need, but have the independence that I need to have in terms of changing delivery systems? So I think what has happened is it has pushed that conversation into CMS and has pushed the conversation at the Hill level. Some of the things that have been talked about is in terms of moving primary care to a capitated model or using capitation as a way to front in a primary care. And as you know, that's one of the reasons why ACO REACH was developed. First, direct contracting uh, was developed to allow the testing of a capitation uh, program through primary care. And I think that is what at the Capitol Hill level and also at the agency level, they're beginning to take a look at how can we better support primary care through different payment structures than we have done before, even if those payment structures would be within a ACO uh, environment. So, you know, in response to your question, the thing that comes to mind and to follow up on what Belinda just uh, shared, was the pandemic, I think, laid bare a whole number of things. How we as a healthcare industry, for example, how do we retain strong physician networks in the backdrop of all these challenges we're currently facing? Not enough primary care physicians across the country, the great resignation and having more and more frontline worker challenges, physician burnout, inbox medicine, and all these things that I just made it very challenging on the one side, and then the optimism that we know primary care physicians can have a significant impact. In fact, they directly influence about 90% of all medical costs and have the potential to do so. And so with a sophisticated team, we can really create the infrastructure that can manage better care and also better cost. But in order to do that, we really need to recenter everyone on value-based care and the merits of value-based care. And I think that's what we as a company stand for. Dr. Dadamani, I love what uh, you brought up and I'd like to zero in a little bit on what you talked about with these challenges of primary care. And, and we'd be remiss if we didn't dive into this plight of physician burnout. And it's become so demoralizing for many in the medical practice. We know that physicians face burnout, but the past two years, as you said, have only amplified the stress that doctors have as they struggle to manage patient care in a pandemic, while also handling new demands at home. And a 2021 Medscape report found that family medicine is one of the five most stressful specialties. Meanwhile, a phenomenal 60% of the surveys, 13,000 physician respondents across 29 specialties pointed to administrative and bureaucratic burdens like charting and paperwork as one of the leading causes of that burnout. On top of that, physicians are missing the motivation of strong patient relationships. The, the same survey cited doctors' frustration that they have little time for patients, and it forces them to forsake establishing a deep rapport in the when providing that care. When physician burnout then leads to turnover, 
It's also really costly on our system. According to an analysis by the AMA published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings, physician turnover interrupts patient care to the tune of $260 million annually. Other reports have echoed that claim with some calculating the burden of burnout to be even higher when combined with the added costs of medical errors and reduced performance of exhausted, depressed doctors. And here at the Institute, we firmly believe that value-based care can ameliorate this epidemic of burnout in primary care by allowing physicians to focus on what is most valuable to them and their patients is the relationship over the transaction. Population health equity over inequitable disparities in poor community health and holism over fragmentation. In your mind, how can we restore the primacy of primary care to improve both patient outcomes and PCP morale? And can you explain how the upstream model of integrating clinical, financial, and technology systems works to help both patients and primary care physicians live longer, happier, and independent lives? Absolutely. And this is what keeps me up at night, and it keeps a, a number of us up, is to if you continue to practice in a fee-for-service environment, it is like being on a hamster wheel. And there's no way to get off. And it just gets more and more complex in an environment, challenging from a financial perspective. And the requirements are just onerous. And what needs to happen is a reallocation of the dollars so that primary care infrastructure can be updated to the 21st century. I recently had a situation where my grandmother was unwell and then eventually passed. But I look back to the fact that she had reached 95. And over the last several years, she had labs being done at home. She had a very you know, supportive infrastructure in terms of caregiver support. And no surprise, she did very well. But I look at most patients and most seniors, and they're shortchanged. They don't have the infrastructure that is needed. There isn't a recognition from this push-pull perspective in terms of how they can get into the right programs. This whole notion of not capturing adequately the risk of, of patients and then attributing the payments directly to support their care, I think is one that needs to be fixed, and it is easily fixable. But Overall, if we can support primary care with better infrastructure that can meet the needs for the patients in the delivery network, the network will benefit, the providers will benefit, the pairs will benefit, and the patients, of course, most importantly, will benefit. We can address health inequities by you know, spending appropriately in those areas, whether it's medical transportation or food insecurity. And we can address important medical complexities with greater support. In our case, we lead out with pharmacists since they address medical optimization and medication goals and therapeutic goals overall for patients. And then we have a support infrastructure that is in the community to support patients in their homes or at the point of care uh, so that you know, they can have other components of care, including most importantly, care coordination addressed. But the underpinning of all that is we get to the right patients and we do that with technology. So in our case, we chose a partner so that we could um, you know, uh, get a quick ramp up into having advanced data science capabilities to recognize, identify, and manage those patients in, in a way that I think reduces the burden on the physicians. 
because in a traditional model, you can identify all the technology using technology, but ultimately somebody has to close those gaps. And so us being embedded in with the patients at the primary care physician's office, I think greatly helps the, the primary care physician. I'd like to add, in addition to that, that I think all of us have acknowledged primary care being overwhelmed. And there are two solutions to that. One is to decrease the amount of panels that they are actually seeing. And there are some organizations that have done that and some models that have done that. But I'm not sure that's realistic for us with the number of primary care practices that we have in this country. Our model at Upstream is different. It's not to decrease the panel size because we believe that there are so many more patients out there that are not getting adequate care, particularly in underserved communities for chronic diseases. That in fact, as Sanjay said, we take technology but technology is a tool that we use. Really what happens, as Sanjay has said, is that we embed people within those practices. We start with the pharmacists because with chronic disease, a lot of them have 10 to 12 medications that they're taking. Some of them have never been reviewed and they're not even sure when they're supposed to take it. So we start with the pharmacists, but we also have care coordinators and we have concierges. And so with the addition of those individuals that will be embedded within the practice, using the technology as a tool, we are able to actually have the primary care physician feel that they're able to then actually take care of the patient at the level they want. And in fact, some of them can actually increase their panel size now. So I, I'm very excited uh, to be a part of this organization and to see the results that I'm seeing in, in patients' lives with this new model. If I'm a primary care physician and I'm listening to this interview, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, okay, I'm convinced you have me at hello. I mean, value-based care is clearly the solution to improve population health, better health equity, financial sustainability, and improving my own morale in the profession. But I'm also thinking about what Sanjay talked about with these 21st century infrastructure requirements. And those are clearly the table stakes needed to play the game of value-based care. And we saw last year that there was over $16 billion of capital deployed in the primary care sector with investors placing massive bets on improving, enhancing, or outright transforming a part of medicine that has historically been overlooked and undervalued. Even as its impact on patients' lives and families has regularly spanned generations. I mean, we've seen this feeding frenzy of capital investment in primary care led by corporate giants like CVS, Aetna, Walgreens, Walmart, Amazon, Optum, et cetera, who are buying these practices outright or hiring the PCPs directly. And as I understand in the upstream model, you support partner practices with the capital needed to move into the deep end of the pool when it comes to the acceptance of fully capitated risk. However, as I understand, your model is a little bit different than the traditional private equity model. Um, providers partner with Upstream and they receive these guaranteed advanced payments for quality or gap queue payments, which are basically financial incentives on a scheduled basis throughout the year uh, for quality performance. And that simple payment structure increases practice income while also providing 
financial stability to allow these practices to, to continue to invest in the future of value-based care. So I wanted to ask you both if you could provide your perspective on the importance of capital investment to advance primary care models towards full risk, total cost of care payment, and how does upstream satisfy this need by providing gap queue advanced payments or other types of payments to help providers access more predictable streams of revenue for reinvestment so that they can build their pop health infrastructure? Eric, the one thing I would say is not only do we partner with independent primary care, but we also partner with primary care practices that are part of large systems. So the capital needs that are out there are not just for the independent physicians. Certainly they have the greatest, but we're finding in our conversations with our partners of health systems that there are so many needs within a health system in terms of capital needs and to keep up with the tertiary technology that is needed, that unfortunately the primary care, and they don't mean to do this, becomes lower on the totem pole to get some of this additional capital. So they understand the degree of frustration that their primary care practices are experiencing, but there's so much capital, only so much capital going around. And as we all know, the margins in health systems have been deteriorating this year and with the market has been taking a dip. So many of them have less investment income that they can use. So when we've reached out to them, health systems and sort of said, not only are we there for capital, for you, we're, uh, for the independents, we're also there to help the primary care. So your question in terms of, okay, so you're giving capital, what does this mean? Well, it means one, from a technology point of view, two, it means from, as you said, GAPQ. And what GAPQ is, is guaranteed advanced payments for quality. So we start, and I'll have Sanjay go through the details of it, but we basically are starting to pay people to get engaged with us to improve quality. And we're seeing that when you improve quality, you actually start seeing costs go down just tremendously. So again, I'm excited that we have a model that we're focused on paying the primary care physician on the front end, guaranteed advanced payments to be working with us to improve their quality. And these payments go up as their quality goes up. So Sanjay, I know you can explain it a lot better than I can in a lot more detail. For a long time, physicians have asked, been asking to have a much simpler construct of what they can believe and abide by in terms of transparent, concurrent, regular access to data, their own performance, and being rewarded for their contributions. We already know the significant contributions that physicians have been making to their patients in terms of providing high quality care. That needs to be recognized immediately. As you shift off of a fee-for-service chassis, something needs to replace it. And that to me is a floor, a floor payment, if you like, or a floor incentive. And that's what guaranteed advanced payments for quality are, is that we set the floor, an achievement rate that is tied to current quality. Let's take a number out there, $15 per member per month. But then as physicians partnered with our team start to achieve more and more in terms of closing gaps, improving qualities, reducing you know, unnecessary hospitalizations, especially for ambulatory sensitive conditions, we continue to reward that achievement on a concurrent basis 
so that physicians can, you know, be very engaged in the process and patients essentially have access to the care that they need. So it's having a much more understanding, easy to run and administer, more attractive from anything that's uncertain to having physicians being rewarded more immediately with income that can support their infrastructure, support their practices, and most of all, support their patient needs. I love what I'm hearing from both of you. And and Valinda, I just have to say, regarding the comment about seeing cost decrease as quality goes up, I think Dr. Brent James would love to hear you say that. I know he's professed that a long time and always nice to have that validation. And I'd like to move now to better understand the embedded service offering that Upstream provides through its value-based MSO. Upstream has a vision to partner with PCPs and provide whole person care that connects the entire health ecosystem. The doctors, pharmacists, registered nurse, the concierge, the social worker, behavioral health case managers, and support staff, all into a unified, specifically dedicated care teams for every patient. And as I understand, your integrated services solution includes home-based care and an in-clinic embedded model with pharmacists, nurses, and other staff, as you've talked about. And we're going to talk about pharmacy integration in a little bit, but I first wanted to engage you on the home-based care model that's based on the work you did earlier in your career, Dr. Dadamani, in which Keystone ACO and Geisinger collaborated to build the health system's first home-based program. And home care medicine is certainly an opportunity to redefine value-based care innovation with the patient home becoming part of the care delivery continuum. Based on the results from a recent McKinsey and Company study, it was estimated that up to $265 billion worth of care are currently being delivered in traditional facilities for Medicare fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. This represents up to 25% of the total cost of care. But they said that all of this could shift to the home by 2025. And that represents a three to fourfold increase in the current spend at home for that same population today. Can you describe the upstream clinical flywheel that utilizes nursing and care management, as well as health concierge services to provide longitudinal, comprehensive, and coordinated primary care that helps chronically ill patients most in need? And what role does home care play in the reimagination of primary care to improve population health outcomes? especially in underserved communities? It's a great question. We all know that there's a component or there's a group in in the community who are very dependent, the top 5-10% of the patient population who account for almost half of all medical expenses and unfortunately have very poor access of many comorbidities and challenges and essentially circulate between the hospital in post-acute and the home without even ever getting out to their primary care physician. We at Upstream have taken it a next step, which is it's not just five or 10% of the population, but roughly 30% of the population account for 65% of all hospitalizations. And that while we recognize that in the Medicare population that 67 approximately percent of the population have two plus chronic conditions, that there's a group of patients who are a well cohort, who I would call the walking well. There's another group, roughly a quarter of the patient population who are self-care. In other words, uh, if I was to reach out to call one of them, even though they may have on an 
electronic format, a number of conditions underlying that they're actually sufficiently uh, capable of following on their medications and instructions and would be surprised by getting a call. And then there's this very you know, large group of about 30% of the population who are truly struggling in many ways, whether it's their comorbidities itself, whether there's health inequities, whether there's um, you know, social disparities that need to be addressed. And so we've built the Upstream flywheel with over 30 years of experience of the founder of Upstream in uh, laying out a very systematic approach to improving care and reducing open gaps. We identify, we do a lot of pre-work on recognizing who that 30% of the patient population are, consolidating their care plans from multiple specialists, and having a lot of pre-visit preparation, what you would think of as a backroom office, while we're essentially driving a more accurate, realistic picture of the patient. We then have the in-person visit, usually in the primary care physician's office, and we start a level of engagement that is not your traditional sort of in-person visit, which would last you know, 15 to 30 minutes and be very transactional. It is really an opportunity for patients to be heard for us to understand many things, both verbal and nonverbal, social and clinical, about the underlying person. It's really that whole person experience that gives us a permissiveness to engage with them on a personal level, to understand and appreciate their struggles. We get to know them, their caregivers, uh, you know, what, what essentially are some of the barriers that they've faced. And we use an approach of forensic listening and behavioral psychology to continue with our engagement. And that gives us an opportunity then to follow up, whether it's virtually, whether it's on the phone, or on any number of ways to help to support the patient needs. That is described largely as the upstream therapeutic workup. And once we go through that subjective, objective assessment plan, getting to agreement, appropriate risk adjustment, working with, in tandem with the primary care physicians, we've now laid out a very neat plan that the patient would uh, you know, buy into and that the physician would support. And that allows us then to use an approach of shared decision-making approach you know, that gives them continued support in an iterative fashion with access to the program's resources and gives us an opportunity then to continue to support the patients, reduce their utilization by achieving stable and therapeutic goals, and in many cases, even resolving some of the therapy problems that they have faced. Well, I wanted to talk more about the role that pharmacy integration plays in the ambulatory care setting within value-based payment. Although pharmacists are most often associated with dispensing medications in retail pharmacies, their role is now evolving to include providing direct care to patients as members of the integrated healthcare provider team. Uh, collaborative care models that include a clinical pharmacist have been shown to alleviate some of the demand for physician-provided care and facilitate access to primary care services, especially those related to medication monitoring and chronic disease management. And with the increasing number of medications prescribed per patient, the need for pharmacoeconomics within chronic disease management and the importance of medication adherence, there are many areas of opportunity for integration of clinical pharmacist services within the team-based care environment. 
And with ACOs that have outcomes-based reimbursement, the medication adherence impact on cost through reduced inpatient stays, reduced ED visits uh, associated with congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia. The savings potential is thousands of dollars per patient per year, potentially. And it seems like integration of pharmacists and primary care-based ACOs is a solution to the looming crisis in access to primary care as well. So I wanted to ask you both, as the industry moves to value-based care, do you think we're going to see more integrative models of care that will be focused on tackling health disparities within a team-based, multidisciplinary approach? And will collaborative care be more common than what we see now where pharmacists, physicians, and other clinicians address health disparities separately? Yes, I do believe that we're going to see a lot more collaborative uh, team approach at the primary care level. However, it's not just adding the team. You've got to add them in a way in which the physician and his staff or her staff feels that it is a part of the team. And so I think there's got to be part of not just plopping them into it, but looking at their role as partners uh, with uh, the physician. So I think a lot of times systems will just go ahead and hire a pharmacist and put them down in the practice. And because the way in which it has been done, it is not integrated within the team. And so it's not as effective as it is when people are working together in a team approach. The second is looking at the care in the underserved communities. We will have to get a lot more contacts as it relates to community services. There's all these wonderful community services and agencies out there. However, unless you work with them day in and day out at the hospital level, you know to call Meals and Wills, you know to call this person for housing, et cetera, when you're ready to discharge the patient. So the hospitals have started uh, having those connections. That has not happened in the primary care's office for the very reason it's so fragmented. So as we begin to take a look at how to address particularly social determinants of health variables, we will have to, at the primary care level, we're going to have to have ways in which we connect to these agencies in a way that's very seamless. And it cannot be cumbersome for the uh, primary care physician or his team. So I think that's another part of the team that will come on board is the individual that is very knowledgeable about the resources in the community and can connect that patient very quickly at the primary care level to those agencies. Belinda's absolutely right. We have a number of allied professions that are identified and recognized to support patients, but the way in which they're inserted into the healthcare delivery system is sometimes challenging. For example, a patient may receive a phone call from a pharmacist in a specialty care network that you know is a remote call from a call center, doesn't know who the patient is, doesn't know their family situation, doesn't know the other medications the patient is on from their mail order and from their retail pharmacies, and is trying to address side effects or adverse reactions by phone with the patient. This makes it extremely challenging, and in fact, it can sometimes even be dangerous. So to have the right arm 
prescribing in a certain subset of patients who are the most dependent and have a lot of medical complexity, especially multiple medications, and have the left arm also providing real-time dispensing or coordination of dispensing, as in the case that we have our pharmacists working with multiple pharmacies, both retail, mail order, and other resource pharmacy networks, that we can bring to bear, I think, more real-time adjudication of the medications and then address side effects to patients is a much safer environment. We all know of patients being on, you know, tens of medications, multiple medications. There is a need for us also, in, in addition to optimizing medical therapy, to actually de-prescribing very specifically around, you know, medications that may or may not be needed any longer, especially to avoid patients having unnecessary side effects from these medications. Um, so, you know, I think there's a combination of things that pharmacy innovation can bring to patients. More and more, this is being identified and recognized. The problem is that the pharmacy workforce is an expensive resource and so needs to be appropriately resourced as well as optimally deployed into the delivery system. It's unfair to ask primary care physicians to be managers in addition to being doctors. And so that's where we help with that deployment from a resources standpoint, especially on the division of labor between licensed and non-licensed clinical teams. You both bring up some great points in talking about the, the transformation required, the care delivery transformation that's required for primary care, not just to only ensure its survival, but also to, to meet the needs of patients in a future. But you can't really support patients throughout the care delivery continuum without understanding their medical complexity and their social challenges, as you've been speaking about. And these things are only really possible when primary care groups are able to leverage analytics platforms that support population health management strategies. And technology helps identify and address populations with a disproportionately higher burden of disease and implement specific individualized interventions to mitigate the risk of costly complications that have a significant impact on the quality of care. And the consumer marketplace in primary care is also now recognizing the opportunity and the value of e-visits, telehealth, asynchronous messaging, and and many other technologies that allow us to maintain and enhance a trusting relationship with primary care physicians and their care teams. Technology is, is kind of a double-edged sword, especially in the case of electronic health records that, that haven't delivered on the promise of clinic workflow optimization and efficiency. We need technologies that are focused on data capture and reporting that can allow clinicians to fulfill their calling rather than being forced to be glorified billing clerks and subject to the measurement industrial complex that rarely drives true improvement. As we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and seek to implement new models of primary care, finance, and delivery, as you consider what practice level technologies should primary care physicians be considering to improve documentation workflow, maximize revenue, improve clinical decision-making, and help them better understand the needs of their patient population? I love the phrase measurement industry complex. It really got me chuckling here because it's become overwhelming, I think, to primary care physicians, especially with all the metrics that are thrown at them. But I think meaningful, actionable metrics are really important. One, condition-specific metrics. So I need to know, for example, in heart failure, adherence on beta blockers, especially the type of beta blockers that are needed for patients with reduced ejection fraction. 
Now that's getting a little specific there. And, you know, there are other chronic conditions that we equally need to recognize and, and optimize from a, a clinical standpoint. And having those metrics is very important. But overall, having a, a source of truth and give us overall utilization rates on admissions per thousand, ED visits for ambulatory sensitive conditions, closing gaps for conditions that are common, preventive uh, steps, I think, are really important. And that's, that's why we chose the CMS STARS and some additional measures that were added onto there so that physicians could buy into the fact that they needed their patients to have mammograms or colonoscopies for, from a prevention standpoint, or getting to goal on diabetes and high blood pressure. Once those come under control, there's a lot of transformation that occurs and a lot of engagement with patients because they feel, you know, especially energized when they've gotten to goal. For example, if you share your, the, the, the optimal numbers with them and that they believe in those. And so I think they're, they're more vigilant uh, when those numbers then go out of whack. So uh, I think they're mutual. Uh, that the, the metrics are ones that patients can understand, physicians adopt uh, widely, and I think that that's when you can have the greatest success. So Daniel, I'm going to push back a little bit with your comments. <laughs> you had asked in terms of what technology that we needed, and I would tell you we certainly do need technology to help us facilitate better transformation of care and interactions. But I think we also have to remember that there is a very, very deep interpersonal component to the care that we give to all these patients. And I can give you a perfect example. Every Medicare patient gets asked the question, have you fallen recently? And I was just a very recent in a family member's visit. And the nurse didn't even look up from the EMR to look at the patient, uh, just said, have you fallen recently? And of course, most uh, Medicare patients would immediately say no, because they don't want anyone coming in, taking away their independence. And so they're going to say no. And what we teach at Upstream for our teams is that there is a strong behavioral component of it. There's a strong interpersonal component of it. And you've got to not be looking at the technology. You've got to not be looking at the laptop. That see how that patient walks across the exam room. See how that patient sits down and gets up from the chair. And I would say, Daniel, that sometimes in healthcare, we look for technology to make it efficient and almost to take the place of the human interaction. And yet it's the human interaction that happens in which the actual care transformation becomes effective. So I would tell you, we continue to talk in terms of how healthcare, our focus is to get independence and to work with families and the uh, patients in terms of us working together with them as a team to achieve that independence. I completely agree with Felinda. I'm going to just add that we don't know what we don't know. And that is referring to the benefit and use of evolving technologies around artificial intelligence. We recently partnered with a very savvy 
innovative AI company called Closed Loop AI that's based in Austin. They won the CMS AI Health Outcomes Challenge, and we have benefited from using the data they have to really identify the most at-risk patients, the underlying conditions, the opportunity to improve care on those patients with the levers that we have. And I think identifying that and knowing eventually that the goalposts may shift a little bit with the use of artificial intelligence, that it will directionally benefit us to adopt and embrace AI and then deep machine learning and identify, I think, even narrower subsets of patients that will benefit from therapeutic goals, especially when we have control over those and the ability to, to resource and pay for them. I couldn't agree more with the both of you. And, you know, technology is uh, so much of an enabler, but it isn't the panacea. And, you know, there has to be thoughtful design and uh, developing a technology architecture that makes sense and doesn't get in the way of the the, the human aspect of relationship-based medicine. And we also have to be thinking about the design of payment models as well to incent the outcomes that that, that we seek in, in this transformation that's underway in our industry. And that's where I wanted to take our conversation next, thinking about this movement uh, to value-based care. You know, if we're going to unlock primary care's potential and shift more of the burden of financial risk from payers to providers, First off, we have to recognize that this fee-for-service, is it's never been right for primary care it, because it, it rewards reactive, transactional, and minimally functional transactions and gets in the way of the relationship. You know, it's it's a flawed technology, you know, itself as a, as a payment model construct. And we also have to think about this move towards value-based care and a prospective payment model and how that upends the way we've historically defined primary care delivery. I mean, it's no longer just the time in an exam room or on a telehealth call. It's We're going to be putting greater emphasis on outcomes instead of appointments, and care can extend beyond regular office hours and real-time interactions, and providers you know, are going to have to learn to lean on teams and the technologies have to support providers and, and working uh, and coordinating care with patients. And you know, I love that partnership with Closed Loop AI. We had them on an earlier podcast and love some of the innovation that we're seeing uh, from them and predictive risk and helping uh, providers uh, use a tech-enabled way to address social determinants of health. And, you know, I'm just thinking a lot about how do we incentivize providers to create value for patients in these payment models so we have better outcomes and lower total cost of care for patients and payers and the evidence for a prospective payment in primary care is overwhelmingly positive but there's still a sense of general reluctance by both payers and pcps to collectively tackle the challenges of change so i wanted to ask you both if you could share your views on the state of the value movement with regard to the scale and proliferation of prospective payment models. I mean, are you optimistic that CMS is going to reach its goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship by 2030? And uh, will the explosive enrollment growth of Medicare Advantage, which is, I believe, projected to be uh, 50% of all Medicare beneficiaries by 2025, which would be 34 million people. I mean, it's truly explosive. I mean, if you take that coupled with some of the changes we're seeing with ACO reach, which uses a lot of the same levers as MA. I mean, how do you feel about the value movement? Are we at this tipping point right now where we're going to truly see a transformation take place in our country at a, where we reach an inflection point? 
I am sure Valinda will have a lot to say about this at the national level. I'm going to ask a provocative question that says, how can you achieve those goals if you leave half the physicians behind in a shared savings model that is very conservative, that doesn't prospectively pay, does not have or integrate total cost of care into the accountability? For me, the only way to achieve that goal and aim is to bring all the physicians along and to enable them to participate in, in full risk models, indemnify their downside, create upside opportunity, create and move the dollars to re be reallocated into supporting their patients in primary care settings so that we can address the patient's needs more directly and their clinical needs through a network of both primary care physicians and specialty physicians. That's the only way I see it possible. In other words, we need to help physicians make that leap. So Eric, I'll tell you, in my estimation, there are three things uh, that are really struggling uh, that are almost barriers in terms of us moving quickly into adopting uh, value-based models. Uh, I think the first one is the benchmark, it, continuing to put the savings on top of it. Uh, what it allows is some of the most efficient and forward-thinking practices and systems, they end up uh, within two or three years hitting a wall because they have to keep going over that savings. That savings gets integrated within the benchmark. And so when you have these conversations with CMS about can you make it a much more regional or national level and eliminate the historical, they're saying, but if someone is giving a care at 5,000 in the region and the region is eight, if we pay them eight, we're losing three. And so they struggle in terms of not being able to get money into the trust fund by having some of the most efficient providers be able to have a benchmark that allows them to have savings. So that's number one is the benchmark and having the historical within the benchmark that ends up disadvantaging some of the most efficient providers. The second one is risk adjustment. We're beginning to have lots of conversations in the country at Capitol Hill, in the agencies. Is, is risk adjustment just a gaming system? Well, it wasn't set up that way. It was set up to actually pay for patients that are sicker. And we have forgotten the reason why it was put there. Now, certainly there has to be some guardrails around it, but that risk adjustment is going to become more complex. And as we add social determinants of health in there, because we're going to have to give providers additional money to address these social determinants of health issues. And the easiest way to do that is through a risk adjustment within uh, the variables. The third and final is when they have done some group conversations with Medicare beneficiaries, and they use the word value-based movement or value-based models, somehow the me Medicare beneficiaries has seen that as stunting of care. So for the most part, Medicare beneficiaries don't understand the difference between Medicare fee-for-service and MA. They get them confused. Second is 
the words that we use to them negate uh, something uh, that they're not getting all the care that they need with that. And some of the words that we use like accountable care, integrated care, coordination of care, they're not sure what that exactly means to them. So there's a real disconnect between uh, the providers in the industry with the Medicare beneficiary in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And we may have to change our language. We may have to, as we're talking to patients about the goals that we want to accomplish, have to change in terms of how we're having that conversation. Well, you both bring up some great points. And I I think I want to leverage this uh, the comments you ended on, Valinda, and talk about some of the other things that we have to change as well moving forward. And, you know, any discussion of value-based care and alternative payment models would be insufficient without recognizing the importance of equity in health. And after the pandemic and the social justice movement over these last few years, we see that equity is now considered to be part of the health value equation central to the movement to reshape our nation's health system. Sanjay, during the pandemic, you wrote an article in Medicity called A Pandemic Reinforced Our Belief in Population Health. And that article challenged the status quo of a payment system based on episodic acute care by specifically recognizing the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on the underserved Black Americans and Latinos dealing with chronic conditions. Other leaders in industry, you know, are also vocalizing these concerns as well. And The CMS Innovation Center has announced it will make health equity central to the value movement by embedding it in every aspect of payment models to increase focus on underserved populations. Can you please both share your views on this historic moment to redefine the value movement through payment model redesign to include equity as a centerpiece? And how will this change impact integrated primary care models? participating in downside risk arrangements that will now be held accountable for the reporting of metrics to demonstrate an impact on both population health and the elimination of health disparities. I really applaud this administration for recentering all of us in the post-pandemic era around the requirement to have health inequities addressed on a very serious and measurable level. It is central to some of the work that uh, places like Kaiser, Geisinger, and Intermountain have known for years. And I've been sufficiently, both uh, from a policy perspective and on a clinical perspective, been convinced it's the only way to go. We will never be able to improve patients and their outcomes for diabetes and other chronic conditions without addressing the health inequity issues, poverty, and food insecurity, and other deprivational issues that uh, are confronting a segment of the population. We saw it with uh, vaccine access in minority communities. We saw it with the greatest, I think, clinical adverse outcomes during the pandemic. And so I have jumped on the bandwagon with this, and we have incorporated both structurally, uh, clinically, and functionally into upstream having a formalized equity program that we will deploy in multiple markets. 
Daniel, that's an excellent uh, question. I'm so glad you asked it. And I echo what Sanjay has said, and I applaud the administration for focusing on this. I think I also applaud the agency leadership for asking input from uh, the stakeholders and the providers in terms of we want this uh, to be something that makes a difference. We don't want it to be seen as another check the box uh, from CMS as a regulation. And we don't want it to have something that is such an undue burden on the providers. So I not only applaud them for having this as a central to all the um, models from um, ACO to all the models that are in CMMI to looking at any of the pay for performance and quality measures in any of the uh, settings. But I also applaud them for continuing to say, we're asking for requests for information. They've been having stakeholder calls. They've asked for individuals uh, to send them letters of their ideas. And I really am very thrilled with the outreach uh, that they've had. I think they recognize that this is something we're going to learn and how we start in terms of what we're collecting. And ACO REACH will be the first model that will be required to have a health equity plan. And we'll have to see what are the elements of that requirement. But I'm sure whatever is started within a few years, we will evolve with them and we will learn so much more in terms of what makes a difference in terms of impacting these social determinants of health variables. Well, Valinda, I wanted to ask you, you talked about ACO REACH earlier. I wanted to get into a little bit more on that payment model. I mean, uh, for our listeners out there, this was the new payment model that was announced on February 24th by CMS. And there was an announcement, I guess, you know, in terms of the the highly anticipated fate of the direct contracting model option. And, you know, this is going to be the, the redesign of the global professional direct contracting model and the permanent cancellation of the geo direct contracting model. And this is really an opportunity, you know, as the acronym says in ACO reach for accountable care organization that realizes equity access and community health. I mean, it's a bold initiative. There's a lot of excitement. I know there's a enthusiastic response from industry. There's a lot of applications now that are being uh, considered for inclusion in this new program. I, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts, Valinda, on ACO reach, what you think in terms of it being a vehicle to further accelerate uh, value transformation and also how Upstream is looking to uh, partner with those organizations that are looking to get into the ACO REACH program. Sure. Thank you, Eric. That's a great question for me because I love ACO REACH. <laughs> um, I think it's one of the most exciting models that CMMI has launched. It has taken all the learnings from the pioneer, from a next-gen direct contracting with the focus on health equity and put it into a payment model. And it's my understanding that a lot of people applied uh, for this uh, third performance year, and we'll have to see how many of them end up uh, translating into signed contracts. But there was certainly no lack of applications um, going in. People are generally very excited about it. They think that they have some unique 
properties within it, like the capitation, within uh, changing some of the benchmark based upon how much penetration in terms of um, underserved uh, communities that you have. We personally are very excited. We've submitted several applications into the program and uh, lots of individuals around the country that I've asked had a great deal of interest. Uh, They're not certain that CMMI has been very quiet in terms of whether they're going to allow any more applications uh, to come in in 2024. And I would probably suspect a no. They will probably have enough for performance year one, performance year two, and now performance year three to get a sufficient number of participants to be able to evaluate whether the use of capitation at a primary care level makes the difference. Having a handful but very targeted quality measures, do they impact care versus MSSP as now going to an all-payer for quality measures? And so they'll be able to determine the impact of having a targeted, limited number of quality measures, what that does. But Eric, I think it has the opportunity to give us an incredible amount of learnings in terms of, as I said, a different payment model for primary care and how to better take care of the uh, social determinants of health variables in underserved communities and how to reach out into those communities through voluntary alignment to get those patients into a primary care practice so that we're able to begin to partner with them to take care of their chronic diseases. Well, I'm encouraged by the both of you and your comments around the emergence of uh, these payment models and the inclusion of equity and ideation and uh, payment model design. And well, let's just assume that we do get there and ACO reach out of the gate, or at least in the early years of the payment model demonstrates good outcomes, cost savings. There's an uptake in adoption. Medicare Advantage continues to grow. There's obviously going to be a momentum that takes place, but my mind takes me to how do we replicate at scale primary care? You know, we see a lot of these high touch uh, primary care groups like Chin Med and Oak Street that are taking very successful models in the, in the localized community and they're finding ways to enter into new markets and create scale through a templated model. And I'd love to better understand your thoughts on that. I mean, you know, there's a saying in the value community, you know, you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO, they're all different, you know, healthcare is local. I mean, there's a lot of that thinking, but, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in how is Upstream looking to replicate its model to create not only local impact, but scalability across the country. That's going to create a multiplier effect for value transformation in the entire country. I'd love to hear your thoughts about kind of the, the future, you know, growth of the company. We've been very blessed to bring on exceptional talent, and we have essentially completed our executive and senior leadership team. Some of the foremost, uh, not only names, but also uh, experienced uh, individuals. And that uh, has been built for scale. We have been very successful in our current geography in North Carolina, and we really value our partnerships, especially with Cone Health System, as well as with Community Care of North Carolina as a uh, essentially partner uh, with primary care physicians who are in their networks. 
But our work is unfinished. We, I think, will not have captured the promise unless we scale into other markets. And so uh, we are under LOI now in South Carolina, in, in Virginia, and uh, in New York. And so I look forward to our expanding into these markets. I look forward to the partnerships with physicians addressing things that you know challenge them the most, freeing up their time to take care of patients and supporting health systems in their journey into value-based care. So it's an exciting time, exciting number of possibilities. And we, I think, are well-poised amongst others to meet the challenges and also take the opportunity of scaling value-based care in the country. It's here to stay. Uh, I think it would be a gross misjudgment that anything short of a bold a set of steps will not get us to 2030. And I think that collaboration is going to be really important to do across the provider landscape. But I just want to say to you and Dan, you know, really I want to congratulate you on the work you've been doing. I just, you know, can't, you know, commend you enough, especially even during the pandemic, you know, continuing to make yourselves available and, and doing great work. Just to, it's, I'm just so happy to see this. Oh, we greatly appreciate that, Sanjay. And it's just, it's such a pleasure to, to reconnect with you. And you've been a longtime supporter of our work. Thank you, Dan and Eric. You were wonderful moderators. Uh, it's our pleasure. Appreciate you both. Thanks for being here and joining us.